Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Nuance Ho YouTube channel. Uh, over here, I have Bill Real, and Bill's doing a collab with me today um, on the Mormon Discussions YouTube channel, right? That's where you're posting this? Yeah, I'm putting this on the Mormon Discussion YouTube channel. It's also streaming to my Facebook page. Yay! Welcome both of our audiences today. Uh, Bill, you are just uh, been such a, a wise thought leader in helping me deconstruct Mormonism from the very beginning. And now, uh, the big topic that comes up a lot is what do I do with my spiritual experiences that I had within the church? What does spirituality look like post the church? Um, for a long time, I would describe myself as as an atheist. I don't know about you, but um, that term for me just kind of means I don't worship one single solitary God, but I do believe in different spiritual practices, mindfulness practices. Uh, and I thought... Uh, you've, give, you've done a lot of good stuff in this space, and it's time that we talk about them. And so thanks just for thanks for coming on with me. I'm, I'm grateful for the chance to sit down with you. I always find you informative and entertaining, and I appreciate your voice in the space. And the fact that, you know, your journey uh, involved my work early on has me having a special allegiance to you and to your success. <laughs> yes. So I'm, I'm excited to be part of this conversation. And I think this is an important conversation. I'll, I'll just say on the front end, this is one of the topics I tend to stay away from. I was telling you off the air that yeah. I've had what I would call incredible spiritual experiences. At least that's how I defined them at some point along the way and haven't been able to exactly call them something other, although I, their meaning may be different. And I, I tend to not want to give people who are deconstructing this part of the story, because when you hear someone who's deconstructed Mormonism or any other religious system tell you how marvelous their experiences were inside that system, it gives believers inside that system the ability to distance themselves from having to think critically about it because they go like, hey, like Bill Real had a marvelous spiritual experience. He knew the church was true. Yeah. And here we are, he's out of the church and it's for some other reason than the, sp the spiritual experiences that confirmed the truthfulness of the system. So right. for that reason, it'll be interesting kind of to dive into this. Yeah. But then the other half of the people are also like, you guys never had a testimony. You've never had spiritual experiences. Yeah, and uh, I think it's good to, to thread that needle of what those spiritual experiences meant and how we view them now and how we totally. take that into uh, new frameworks and understandings because uh, there's there's obviously a lot of good times that I had in Mormonism. I didn't have a bad time. Um, yeah. I wasn't like horribly traumatized. There are just things I had to deconstruct, uh, things that were given to me as absolute truths. And now I view that as a lot more of a, a free-flowing, nuance type perspective that there's, uh, there's ways to deconstruct every type of framework, including Mormonism, not holding too tightly to anything. It's now kind of how I would view it. So uh, thank you guys so much uh, for joining this live. Obviously, you can uh, throw up super chats throughout this if you'd like to, wherever you're watching this on Bill's channel or my channel. Um, hopefully, you are subscribed to both of our channels. Please. And uh, I also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash nuance ho. And uh, all my links will be down below. You can find me down there. Um, and we want to plug something really important that's coming up in Utah with... Uh, Bill and his wife Amanda are coming up and I'm really excited about this. I will try to be attending because like I said, Bill was so instrumental in my deconstruction. Like I think everybody has like one person that they were obsessively listening to their podcast, helping them figure out the messiness of Mormonism. And Bill was my person for that. So Bill, let me throw up your, 
your slide for oh, it won't, uh, what it is won't, it? you'll have to throw it up my friend. oh i have to throw it up i'm in yep. charge it's <laughs> okay no sweat because it won't let me because i'm your guest so uh, this coming week, I mean, we got this week here that'll happen. And then Sunday evening, next Sunday, this coming Sunday, I should say, uh, I'll be leaving for a three o'clock flight, uh, flight, 3.30 flight to head to Salt Lake City. And I'll be spending uh, Sunday evening, Monday, Tuesday, and then I'll leave Wednesday morning to come back home. But I'll spend that time with John Boleyn and uh, with folks who want to come out to this event. The plan is to sit down, either me or me and my wife, we're still trying to work out how she feels about all of that. She's not really one to sit and put her life up on display, but uh, to sit down and have an interview with John DeLynn over multi hours. And I've got a lot of stories I've never shared. I've been on Mormon stories four times, but there's a lot of stories I haven't shared, including yeah. the night I spent in jail as a seven-year-old. Um, so that story will get told, I hope. Wow. And uh, uh, then on Wednesday or no, sorry, Tuesday night, which will be May 30th there in Alpine, Utah, there's going to be a special event, John, is so gracious to have reached out and to do an event. It's hard to talk about because it's for me to do an event in my honor. There's a VIP dinner at 6 p.m. I think that's 30 bucks. And then the actual event starts at 7 p.m. Uh, me or me and my wife will share a few words at the beginning of that. And then we'll open up to a Q&A and answer anything that you've got. And I've always made it um, important to be vulnerable and transparent and honest about my journey uh, so as to model those things for others, because I criticize this system for not being those things. And so it's a chance if you want to dive into parts of my life uh, or have questions about things about the church or my journey, deconstructing it or being in it, uh, we'd love to have you show up. And John's also gracious enough to donate all the proceeds to Mormon discussion. Uh, so you'll be helping our nonprofit by supporting that event as well. And I would love to spend time with you guys. And I get a lot of folks who say that I've been an important part of their journey that's deeply humbling. It really is. And, uh, but I would really welcome the time to spend with each of you on a, on a kind of more intimate basis that evening. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, definitely check that out. You guys. Um, I'm going to try to show up just as a fan, as your number one fan. <laughs> Love uh, it. Yeah. So uh, let's figure out where do we want to go first in this conversation? I have some ideas, yeah. but what are, where do you want to go first? The first thing I think that I would want, or at least I would want to do early on is I would want us to share some of those spiritual experiences we had yeah. to set how, how incredible some of these things are that happen within a spiritual system and your own spiritual framework. Um, yeah. And I would also, can we take it a layer deeper um, for people who are not as, I, I mean, I guess I have to operate from what I understood as the framework of spiritual experiences in Mormonism, first of all. So this will also be maybe be a little bit educational for um, people who are not never been Mormon or at least people. I don't want to straw man what the Mormon spiritual experience is kind of like as if I'm going to, you know, push it down because um I, I always say, you can go back to my Mormon stories interview. Like, yeah, I had a great time. I had great friends. I had great young women's leaders. I had great girls camp experiences. Um, everything in my life, um, I think really pointed me towards some of the best ideals that I still hold today, which is just being very service oriented, trying to be kind, um, different seminary lessons that I'd have that I remember one where the so just things that point out that stick out to you, like never suppress a generous thought and like beautiful ideas about um, giving, uh, doing hard things and, and uh, giving back to people who have given you a lot of things and being in community with people, especially. And um, I know in this ex-Mormon community, we're quick to call into question what that elevated emotion looks like and uh, pin things that 
that where we we feel a, a, that that elevated emotion that could be defined as uh, like a, a, a higher state of awakening where you feel motivated to do good and you see the good acts of others and you feel warm, tingly feelings. And in Mormonism, that's called the spirit. That's the burning in the bosom. And in the framework of of the Mormon church, when you're having those experiences in seminary, young women's growing up on your mission, um, praying, praying about the Book of Mormon, you're kind of told that those warm feelings are always going to be from the spirit, meaning one third of the Godhead, meaning Jesus Christ, Heavenly Father, and uh, and the not so embodied Holy Ghost that can come within you. He can visit you. The light of Christ is within everyone. And when you're yearning towards doing good, um, when you're reading your scriptures, when you're following what you're doing, those blessings will come to you. You'll have the Holy Ghost as a guide. And those things can just um, compound on top of one another. You're doing good. You feel the blessings. You look for the blessings. You're feeling good. If you're not obeying the commandments, if you're acting outside of it, you will feel a dark presence come over you. I was just reading um, a Mormon subreddit last night where somebody was like, I feel really bad when I read anti-Mormon material. And they're like, you need to know that's the Holy Ghost retreating. You know, there's a, a, a very serious aspect of Satan trying to get a hold of you if you are acting outside of those lines. And so it's a very black and white, uh, how I would view it, uh, view of spirituality, of doing the right thing, staying in line with what the leaders tell you to do. You will be blessed. You'll see the fruits of those blessings. You'll have warm feelings. That's how you'll know that it's true. Um, how would you, do you want to add anything to that framework as you would have understood it when you were a Mormon? Yeah. Um, just as you're pointing out anything that would have been representative of cognitive dissonance, the being pulled between two competing, uh, frameworks or thought processes in your mind, such as believing in the church and dealing with the data that's contrary, uh, any, uh, mechanism by which you would see that the church is, uh, that there's information that's deeply contradictory to the beliefs that you held in the church, the, any type of um, searching or reading or thinking about uh, issues within Mormonism and reading it from the perspective of critical thought and trying to go like, maybe this isn't true. All of those things you would have been persuaded to see as bad endeavors or full yeah. of the, the, the spirit of the devil. And this idea, and then, the, and as you're pointing out, the Holy Ghost would have been framed as good feelings, feelings of peace, of, of sensing that uh, there's a warm feeling in your chest, the hair stands up on your arms, or your back, uh, or your or your neck. Um, and then there are, and again, we'll get into this as we have this conversation. But there are better ways to explain these things. But within a Mormon framework, and I wasn't born in the church, but it was really the only spiritual framing I had. I was 17 years old when I came in, and Everything that was taught to me was that kind of black and white, like everything over here that makes you think the church isn't true, that's of the devil. And everything over here that makes you think the church is true, that's how God answers prayers. And I remember, because I was a convert, I remember the missionaries coming into my home, um, teaching in my parents' home with me in it. My parents weren't part of it. They didn't take the lessons. I was the only one. So the missionaries would teach me. Uh, and they would teach me, like, read Moroni 3 through 5 of chapter 10. Study that out think about your feelings when you pray about it. And I was very much taught to trust uh, these things that aren't outwardly measured. They're just internal in my mind and body uh, as mm -hmm. being testifiers of the truth claims of Mormonism. Right. And uh, that can kind of lead into my discussion, unless you want to talk about something else. Um, mm -hmm. 
every podcast, I have to bring it up. Every time I'm with you, I have to bring up your uh, Cognitive Dissonance podcast uh, reacting to Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris talking about dogma. Um, I, I've listened to that more than I've listened to anything else since uh, deconstructing and leaving the church and really feeling like um, understanding uh, where you as a person who could be having spiritual experiences and how wonderful that could be, because I think that is core to a human identity. And I think Sam Harris is a, obviously a very famous atheist and neuroscientist uh, has said many times that spiritual experiences are very ubiquitous across all cultures. And so uh, when does it become harmful and when is it actually taking away from human flourishing is when I think there is, there's dogma to it. And so my, my, my frustration with uh, Mormonism and, and a lot of religions generally, the high demand nature of Mormonism is taking that ubiquitous, beautiful experience that could just be from a communal, uh, you know, gathering. When you look at my young women's groups at girls camp, what else is that? It's me and some like 20 of my best friends and their moms. And um, we're, we're dedicating a weekend or, you know, a week together to be up in the mountains, to feel, uh, to feel steadied, to feel calm. And all of that is in service to a high demand fundamentalist cult, as I would call it, right? So especially after talking to Stephen Hasenmore, um, I feel more comfortable <laughs> even calling it cult, but I don't say that to to, uh, to, to be rude necessarily. Uh, but it's all the, the this nature within us that's very ubiquitous to want to strive after doing good, to um, to look for the best in people, to that calmness, that meditation is then taken. And uh, what I would view as a very beautiful sense of, of oneness, um, of love and divinity um, is then taken and utilized for uh, th that spiritual experience has a stamp on it now. And then it, the church kind of owns that. They say that because you felt that, that means the church is true. Therefore, Joseph Smith was a prophet. Therefore, polygamy is something that you're going to have to live the rest of eternity. You could possibly have, you know, a million other domino effects from just that one spiritual experience that then is supposed to fortify you as just kind of a teenager and feeling confident. What, what I would have assumed when I was a teenager is just to help me overcome depression and anxiety and make me feel like God loved me. But it just hurts that all of that, what it really did was make me uh, force me into a box, force me into a black and white dynamic. That is what so much of us, so many of us have to deconstruct getting married very early. The, the life choices that we make are all based around these ubiquitous kind of spiritual experiences. Again, that just, they have this Mormon church is true now stamp on that. And I don't think that that's fair. Yeah, totally. And um, maybe if you don't mind, I'd love to jump into some of the spiritual experiences I had, sure. and I'd love to get a feel for some of the ones you've had. So uh, first off, first time I walked into church, I went into a young men's lesson. They were, had three chalkboards in the room and they used all three of them. One was God, the father, one was Jesus Christ. One was the Holy ghost. And they were defining the Mormon Godhead. And I can't, I can't explain this, but I grew up in a non-religious family. We had a family Bible and that was it. We never talked about it. We never uh, shared stories. My parents weren't religious at all. My mom was a Baptist as a child. She had a really rough childhood, foster care, all kinds of things. Um, she uh, left the, any kind of religious uh, activity around the age of 16. My dad grew up in a very uh, atheist home, um, but not like outwardly atheist. It's just blue collar workers. They never went to church, never talked about God. And my grandfather, when things went bad, would sort of curse God. 
And so I didn't have any sort of religious upbringing. I come to the LDS church for the very first time. I uh, sitting in this lesson where they're defining the Godhead in my school system were mostly, mostly Catholics and Lutherans. At least they were the ones who were speaking out loud about religion. And so they held a very Trinitarian view. And somehow I just uh, internally understood that the Godhead of Mormonism seemed like that's the way I already believed if there was a God, not that I believed in God, but that if there was a God and Christianity was his system, that this is what it is. It's, it's these three beings that are separate. And uh, I, I remember being in that lesson and going like, how did I get to that? How did I come to that belief being surrounded only by Trinitarians and not really having uh, any kind of conversation where I was able to explore that. And so I thought of that as a spiritual experience. When I prayed about, I read the entire Book of Mormon as a 17-year-old kid and and then prayed about it. And the night I prayed about it, I didn't get an answer. I was actually ended up in tears because nothing happened. And the next day I was sitting on, actually laying down on my couch in my parents' home, my parents' couch, I should say, I guess. I was laying on the couch. My wife was sitting on the floor next to me. She was just my girlfriend at the time. And the missionaries were teaching me, and we were talking about the word of wisdom. And uh, I knew that like alcohol could lead to bad outcomes and, and on, a on a deep level was you know unhealthy to partake of. Um, I knew that drugs on some level could be bad and addictive and cause harm. But I didn't understand coffee and tea, and I, I was a light coffee drinker here and there, but I was a sweet tea drinker on a regular basis. My dad would make a ton of it. And uh, he would just get a pot of water, throw some tea bags in, he would boil it, let it sit, you know, four or five, six hours. And then he would make this pitcher of sweet tea. And we just, it was something our family always had. And I couldn't make sense in my head. Like why would sweet tea be against God's rules? And in the midst of my girlfriend uh, and I talking about the word of wisdom and the lessons that I was taking from the missionaries, I had what I would call a mystical experience. And I don't know, like Paul says in the scriptures, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. And I can't even tell you, did I, did I force it and, and make it up in my head? Did it really happen? Was it real? Was it not? And even when it happened, I had reservations about labeling it because I didn't know what had occurred. But what, what I experienced was, either in my head or out of my eyes, my parents live in a, um, a split level home. And uh, I was on the middle floor. There's actually three floors while stairs going up, stairs going down and uh, up the stairs to the top of the landing. The hallway goes to the bedrooms of the home. I just had this mystical experience where I envision, but in that spot in my eyesight, I could see my life unfold. And uh, I, I perceived that I saw my children and I couldn't tell you like today, like, did I see my four actual kids or did I just sense that I was going to have kids? I, I don't know, but it was a big deal at the time. It allowed me, and, and I also had this thought in my head, Bill quit arguing with her. Cause I was arguing with my girlfriend about whether tea should be excluded. And the thought in my head, and it was in the form of like a voice, but it wasn't like I heard anything. It was uh, something saying, Bill, quit arguing with her. The church is true, all of it. Um, and from that moment, I set down my question about the word of wisdom and 
uh, I went forward with as much passion as a person could have in joining the church and entered the waters of baptism and began uh, a decade and a half of uh, church service in uh, leadership positions because I was so all in. Um, that experience was dynamic to me. And I remember sharing it early on in my membership in a fast and testimony meeting or in lessons on conversion or anytime I went out with the missionaries to, to testify of uh, to testify of the church being true and this process of reading Moroni chapter 10, three through five. And there were other experiences along the way where things just lined up in such a way that I say a prayer because I have a need. And, uh, you know, four hours later, the solution to that comes. I remember wanting to go to a church uh, event and uh, uh, an older man, but a really close friend of mine at church who we served in callings all the time, uh, asked if he could pick me up and take me. I said, I just can't go. I won't be able to do it. I've got, I've got work today and I really want to make it to this, but there's no way I'm going to be able to get there in time after work ends. And I don't remember what happened, but something happened at work that everybody got to leave early. And it was like, oh, like, of course, like, that's an answer to a prayer, like Heavenly Father, bless me to be able to do that. And those kinds of things happened enough, often enough that I could count them as uh, answers to, uh, from God to me, uh, indicating some, on some level, the church was true. God was happy that I wanted to do these things and accomplish such. And then he gave me these resources or gave me this time or you know, suddenly sends a hundred bucks my way when there was a, a bill to pay that was $98. And it, to the point where I was just certain the church was what it claimed to be. And these experiences right. were how God worked in my life. Yeah. Also welcome Samantha Shelley to the chat from self on the shelf. She said, this is very similar to my story. I've been having, I'd been having missionary lessons, but then felt but then had a confirmation through learning about the word of wisdom conversion. Did I, yeah. I don't know. My eyes stop working when I'm trying to do too many things. Sorry. Um, yeah. Um, I feel similarly that there's just certain, again, if we want to thread this line between things that I, I still understand and I still value um, it's just towards progression. And if so much of Mormonism is about this eternal progression and everything. And again, it's boxed within this, like, do this, do this, do this, obtain these covenants. Eventually you'll become a god or goddess and you're ordained that type of way. That's one box, right? That's one framework. But then just kind of looking for coincidences that I would feel like that there's a god out there is kind of what I was looking for throughout my youth. So um, I was raised uh, Mormon. My parents were converts. And uh, when I was living in Provo, Utah, is where I went to high school, Tempe High School, um, I would say is like 95% Mormon. And so everywhere around me, everyone's attending seminary. And that was my norm is just that look at these fruits, look at how look at everyone's so happy, everyone's wealthy, everyone's got a good life. Um, all I saw, I saw were the good fruits of Mormonism. But that still will never really do much for you unless you feel like there is a God who is watching out for you, who cares about you, you know, and so you're going to be looking for coincidences, you're going to looking for for a confirmation of that. Um, and so as you were talking, I was trying to think of probably one of my biggest spiritual experiences that it, it kind of came as an outgrowth of just being a teenager, being a very depressed teenager. Um, I don't know how heavy I want to get right now. Should I get heavy? <laughs> 
Okay, we're going to get heavy. Um, somebody also, let me just address this so that somebody said that Karen needs to stop using so many pop psychology buzzwords that I look like I have an elementary school education. And that's fine if you think that, because I probably do. We're talking about spiritual things and along a spiritual journey. Um, Samantha and Tanner taught me about like Terrence McKenna has these ideas about memes and that the way that you go uh, eventually deeper into things is to first just be able to propagate good ideas that are at least better than Iron Age, Iron Age philosophy ideas. And so it's a messy space. Nobody has to be perfect. So yeah. um, I'm on, sure I'm on my own. <laughs> We're all on a, just a, a spiritual journey here. So I just wanted to add that, that if I sound like a vocal fry Kardashian, that's probably something you need to deconstruct about the way that women sound and uh, your, your problems with it. But anyway, yeah. so I just want to get that off my chest before I go into something personal and deep here. Um, so if we're talking about just kind of looking for, for ways that God loves you. And uh, when I was in the church, I, in ninth grade, I think was the most depressed that I'd ever been. Um, I was a child who was molested most of my life. And um, in ninth grade is where I think, I don't know, coming to terms with it um, and feeling very, very alone and very isolated and trying to understand the God that would let that happen. Um, and just, just it, it, ha it had to go through a phase and in ninth grade was that phase. And so um, most of that time, I really felt like I was going to unalive myself through most of ninth grade. I didn't know how to, to to fit in a framework that I was loved and that I could have a, a good life. And so feeling very isolated, feeling very alone. While again, I'm looking at this framework of Mormonism. Everyone's really happy around me. Um, I felt like the only missing piece that I needed, I needed to know that there was a God out there that cared about me and that it had some type of um, plan for all of this to make sense. And uh, one of my, my most spiritual coincidences or uh, things that, that put me on this trajectory to feeling like, all of not just that the church was true and it was good and it had fruits, but there was an actual heavenly father, an actual heavenly father who had a plan for me um, was when I was in ninth grade. I had no one to talk to my parents. I don't want to talk to my parents. I don't want to talk to anyone. I thought just like the best mode of operation was just to unalive myself. And um, um, I had a best friend at the time and I felt like the only, only way that I would, I could only tell her, I could only like kind of put this out there and let it breathe for a little while um, was my best friend, Camille, Camille Whiteley, <laughs> who's still LDS. We're still good friends. And she, um, uh, it just was one of those coincidences where her mom would never, ever, ever let her have sleepovers. One of those Mormon moms. And it just so happened that my mom is a Mormon hippie who shops at Good Earth. And her mom is a Mormon hippie who shops at Good Earth. And her mom said, no, there's no way that I'm going to let you have a sleepover with anyone. And I remember praying with her and begging God that we could find a way. She knew that like, I was going through something really difficult and it just felt like a sign from God that when her mom found out that, Oh, Kara's mom shops at good earth. She goes, yeah, it's still an inside joke between us today. <laughs> like, okay. Kara's mom also shops at good earth. Like the one good, one good thing about my mom being such a good Mormon hippie. Uh, and so we were able to get together and have a sleepover and have a very unified um, bonding night where I was able to kind of release all of this shame, release all of this depression. And it just felt like my, my brain exploded into a new level of, of abundance of love from a maker is what I would call it of feeling very isolated, feeling very alone to feeling like connected with other people connected to this God, knowing that there was something out there that cared about me because it was making things happen in my life. 
And using that framework moving forward through most of my teenage years into my 20s, into getting married, finding my husband and things, just always looking like, oh, there's a God out there. There's a God out there that cares about me, that is looking out for me, that wants good things to come to me and things that look like they are bad, that God will use them for his good. He will... Um, yeah, he, God is a God of miracles and he will take small finite vessels and, and use them for his, his good. And that's where my basis for, for loving the church and loving Jesus Christ, the atonement, um, the redemption, all of that kind of spurred out of that for me. Yeah. And there was probably one more I should share because it, it wasn't positive. It was more of a negative one. Um, as I began deconstructing the church and I was beginning to have thoughts that maybe the church isn't what it claims to be. Maybe it's not true. Uh, I remember one uh, night having, oh, I should share one more too. Um, one night where I had a dream uh, as I was deconstructing that um, in my dream, I go to the airport. I need to meet up with my family. My family is going to go to Salt Lake City in the dream. And by this time we lived in Ohio. We've got no plan to go to Utah. And I'm deconstructing. I feel a lot of... Uh, scary emotions in terms of like this thing that I've invested my life into. What do I do if it's not what it claims to be? Uh, and in the dream, the, my family gets to Salt Lake city. I have to take a different airplane. And when I get to the airport, I've arrived late. I can't get on the plane. And it was very clear as the dream is going on that it's meaning was that my family is going to be an eternal family. They're going to go off to uh, the kingdom of God after this life. And I'm going to be left behind. There was also a time when serving as a bishop, when uh, I was praying uh, for the members of the ward and, and you know, as, as the bishop, I, I took it uber seriously and was completely invested. And there was one night where like three in the morning, four in the morning, um, I get woken up out of my sleep and I get out of bed and I get, I just know I have this thought in my head that I need to pray for this specific family in our ward. So I get out of bed and I kneel down next to my bed and I pray for this family. It woke my wife up that I got startled and got out of bed and did that, that she asked me, what, are, what were you doing? What are you doing? And I said, I don't know. I just, I got woken up out of my sleep and God told me to pray for, and I told her the family and uh, I prayed for them. I got back into bed, fell asleep. I didn't think anything of it. Got up the next morning and sort of forgot what had happened in the middle of the night and went to work, got home from work. And another member of the ward called me up and said, Hey, Bill, did you hear what happened? And I said, no, but I'm going to guess it happened at three o'clock last night during the middle of the wow. night. And he said, it did. He said, uh, we were taking this family to the temple and they were going for the first time. And I was involved in that. So, you know, that plays into how I can sort of reconcile that after the fact. But um, this family was going to the temple for the very first time and they were staying in a hotel the night before. And this other family was the family that was going through with them, that was taking them through to be supportive of them and, and be kind of the, the, the family that's already been through the temple to kind of set the example for them. And the female in the family that, was, that I prayed for, she had a miscarriage at three o'clock in the morning. And she spent some time, you know, they go, you know, go resolve that however they resolve that. But when that was all done... She, want, she debated whether they should go the next day to get sealed in the temple or not. And um, she ended up having her own prayer and felt this nudge that she should go to the temple and do the sealing uh, for her family, even in the midst of dealing with this thing that was really hard. And they did. They went to the temple, got sealed. 
and left. And I looked back at that like, oh, like I'm the bishop. God took me and woke me up at three o'clock in the morning and told me to pray for this family. And that's that's real. Um, and so some of these experiences, they're beyond sort of coincidence. They are in this realm where your brain really does want to give a lot of credibility to, to the experiences themselves. And um, it is interesting. Once I knew the church wasn't what it claimed to be, having to kind of deal with those kind of lingered beyond when I knew the church wasn't true. Like I, I still had to kind of confront those experiences and couldn't quite explain those away, even in the midst of knowing that this thing wasn't what it claimed to be. Yeah. So let's talk about how did you, cause uh, the chat is kind of right now, like Samantha's saying that we're all connected and uh, I, I have a different kind of framework that I've moved into that's similar to that. And um, my experience is, just because I, I did feel that that connection that we're all connected, that God's looking out for me. He's giving me impressions to help people. Um, and I was doing what I would feel like were almost supernatural things <laughs> where I had like a, an actual spiritual uh, motivation to do things that were harder than my normal self would want to do. And that's, that's usually looking out for people in your community and, uh, finding the time, time opening up in my schedule to be able to go take people and drive them to downtown LA to go to the Bishop's storehouse and being like, God opened up my schedule to, you know, do things like that. And so there's that, that aspect of interconnectedness within, within Mormonism that again, you kind of put the stamp on it that like, well, that means that Elohim, Jehovah, this framework, we're in heaven true, becoming God's true. It leads into all those other things. But once you deconstruct, you take those, those truth claims off of Mormonism. What do you do with that feeling that we're still quite all interconnected. Where have you landed on that kind of idea? Yeah. Um, I, again, how would I frame it, it? It goes into a lot of how I frame where, uh, what I believe today. I, I am an atheist and I'm a mystic. And um, if we tear God down to being uh, omniscient, omnipresent um, and all powerful, uh, omnipotent, uh, we end up, we can also make the universe fit into that. And so whatever the creative energy is of this universe, that it's, if, if we if we agree that something happened 13.8 billion years ago and that everything expanded in this modern universe from that, it, it doesn't take but just another thought, you know, another hop, jump and a skip to notice that uh, the creative energy of the universe, though not conscience, no, not though not conscious, even though I would also argue maybe it is because we are that universe, right? We are, uh, somebody said, we'll take a drink every time we mention Eckhart Tolle. Eckhart Tolle said, we are the universe expressing ourselves as a human for a little while. And I first and, got into him from you recommending his uh, podcast with Oprah and that expanded yeah. everything that led to one thing, one led to another thing. And my my happiness and well-being is thanks to your recommendation on that. So, Woo. So the idea that that creative energy is all powerful. Well, every damn thing that's been done in the universe was done by it. And yeah. to say, is it all knowing? Well, everything that's known in the universe is known by that creative energy. And is it all present? Well, it's everywhere in everything. And when you look at the early um, Christian writers in, in scripture, you know, the, the old Testament, the new Testament, you get this idea that God is everywhere and no one knows his face. It seems as though they're trying 
to describe this abstract idea and that along the way, some folks are putting more specifics on it than they had any business doing. <laughs> but so it seems well like they're rest. It does seem like they're wrestling yeah. with the sense that we are all interconnected and there is a creative energy in the universe and it is all powerful and all present and all knowing. Um, and so where I end up is that I, I make room. I always say, I, I know what it's not. I know it's not Scientology. I know it's not Jehovah's yeah. witnesses. I know it's not Mormonism. I know it's not Catholicism. I know it's not Methodism. Um, I know it's not uh, Hinduism. Exactly. I know it's not uh, heaven's gate or, you know, Jim Jones, but I don't know what it is. And I'm open to the idea that we are interconnected. And I believe we're interconnected, but maybe not those two aren't the exact same place in my brain. I'm going to wrestle with each of them. Um, I think we ought to leave room that there is mystery in this universe that we don't know everything. In fact, I've been having conversations with another person, real intelligent person in the post-Mormon community. And this person sent me uh, some YouTube videos on science from the, the kind of prevailing physicist of our day. And they're debating right now this idea of like particles and waves. And when the observer watches yes. the waves, they're particles. But if the observer doesn't watch, then they're waves, right? Or, or vice versa. They're, they're, they're going further with this science. There, there is debate right now of whether time and space is concrete. Like, is it fundamental? And, and some of the science that's coming out right now is saying time and space is not fundamental. And there's argument about, uh, there's disagreement about whether consciousness comes before time and space or time and space comes before consciousness. And the argument that they're making is that our eyes are essentially like a VR headset and we're not seeing reality the way it is. And time and space as we understand it is not the way it is. And I'm not saying that's true. What I'm saying though, is that there are smarter people than me, more educated in these fields than I am. And they are saying things that would completely run counter to the way I've organized meaning in this universe. And hence I ought to leave room that there's mystery and that there's things we can't figure out. And so I'm open very much to the idea that we are all deeply interconnected. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be so, um, obviously there's so many spectrums of what people would call like spirituality. There's like woo woo stuff and crystals and there's all different modes. And, and I would call, yeah, just different modalities for people to try to find meaning and look for things, but taking that into even the most scientific lens, if we're just saying that, is it obvious that, um, particles and things interact with their environment is it obvious that us in this body in the skin that we interact with the water cycle and with the air and with every everything has to be interconnected just because we can't i as a human being cannot survive in outside of being nourished by food and out of water and outside of air and so if i know that i'm interacting with this environment other people are interacting with this environment how is that push and what what kind of energy energy that they're expending after they eat food the way that their brain processes things the way they go out into the world if every single way that we 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 use up energy within our bodies in different ways and then how are the people with with us and around us utilizing that energy that we give them how are they taking it in i think it's just obvious that from even the most like materialistic view that there's going to be a, a push and a pull there and so then you go one step further to, to to kind of put it into a little bit more of like the metaphysical realm 
of like things that I can't see. So if there's like exoteric knowledge and then there's esoteric knowledge, what are these things that are our, our, our life here in 2023 are going to be made of? I think it's going to be a combination of both that have gotten human civilization to this point. And so it's, it's, again, it's a journey. It's interesting to just kind of dive into that. Um, and what are the things that I'm not seeing that are less obvious uh, that can't, that again, have always been with us that are, are around us at all times. And that's just the fun. That's the play of, of being a human being. I think that's why it's so fun to deconstruct something like Mormonism or Jehovah's witness or Scientology or any other kind of high demand group that kind of puts a box and a framework around things. And just to be like loosey goosey with um, having a free flow of energy and ideas and not taking anything too dogmatically at any time. Yeah. Um, I've heard too many stories of twins who were separated and experienced really strange coincidences, right? Mm -hmm. One person breaks their arm and the other feels it. Um, they're just this idea of particles in a way that there's this idea that particles um, that every particle has its twin and not in the same space, but that these particles tend to do the exact same things, even though they're separated by significant Resonance. distances. Yeah. And so there's something, and I don't know what it is, and I'm not here to claim some sort of woo-woo. And I'm going to leave myself open that as science gets further and further in what we can know, that we're all going to have to reframe some of our ideas. Do you, if you want to bring up the Jacob Hansen um, little debate that you had last week, I recommend everyone go watch it. It was the most fascinating thing I've seen in this this post-Mormon realm in a long time. Uh, Bill Real discussing with a, what would you call a Mormon apologist, a Mormon podcaster. Um, and you guys really hit on the subject of truth a lot and your frameworks for for truth and what we know. I I think you guys were never, I mean, you understood what he was talking about. I think it was almost impossible for for him to kind of understand what you're talking about. And so I think we have to get out of these, these frame, these, uh, these black and white fallacious ideas that the, the ways that we can know truth have to become, have to be coming from this Mormon iron age philosophies about the Bible. The Bible is true. Jesus Christ is the literal God. And that means that Mormonism and these people speak for God. And for me, it personally, it's this, it's this outsourcing of, of authority and autonomy to something else. And as I've grown in the last four years since leaving the church, the thing that hurts the most is just that, that like whatever you want to believe about spirituality, um, it's that, uh, uh, throw quote about if you are trying to seek God and you meet a servant, ask for God himself, something like that, if you know that quote. Um, and just this idea that the, the ways that we want to be able to find out where our place is in the world and how we interact with this environment, so much of it is just like, Bloop, all of those neural pathways, all of that spirituality is quite outsourced to something else. And then we're told how to operate within it. Then getting these warm feelings, this elevated emotion that will then double down that our out, our authority should be outsourced. You know, just that that mode um, is is honestly, I think it's frightening. But I think in in Jacob Hansen's view, he brings up Hitler. You know, he's like, well, if you trust your inner authority, look at Hitler. You know, so I don't know if you wanted to discuss that anymore because I think taking back your intuition, just the same way that Jacob Hansen was saying, like, well, well, of course, within the framework of Mormonism, yeah, there's going to be people who speak 
uh, and say wrong things. And that's where you have your intuition to know what's right or wrong. And Bill, you made the excellent point in that, that podcast about like, okay, well, that's, that's just what I'm doing now. It's like, I looked in Mormonism. I thought I could figure this out better than these men who give me so many wrong answers that I know are demonstrably false. And so now just on the other side of that, I'm also just in this pursuit for truth. So, so how do you pursue, what do you, what do you view as true? How do you, how do you view that now? I feel like that is the buzzword of all buzzwords um, that you almost have to feel like I have to define how I find truth, you know, where, uh, yeah, I'm now I'm ranting, but did that question make sense? Yeah. So um, Jacob Hansen, I would, I would consider a very intelligent, I would consider him articulate. He's a believer, a faithful, active believer. He's the last kid uh, in his family. Uh, who is active in the church. All of his siblings have uh, encountered some sort of faith crisis or difficulty believing and have deconstructed and stepped away. And these conversations, we've had two of them so far. We'll have a third on this Friday. The first one was on morality. The second one was on faith crises, although it seemed like most of it turned right back into arguing about morality. And his two main points, as I understood them, is that the world was really organized as barbarianism and that the Judeo-Christian movement came along. And I think he, he might even put Islam with that as well, but these three monotheistic religions that are sort of related to each other. And that, uh, that movement is what prompted human beings to get better at treating each other kindly. And, that in spite of its flaws, that it's the only way in which we can have a morality in which is dependable and not entirely subjective. And I've got two issues, and actually Spencer Wright and I have been talking this week, we're going to record an episode to dive deeper into this morality issue, because Spencer's got some thoughts that I didn't think of that I think counter what Jacob was trying to accomplish. But essentially, the, the main points are that even even if having a God makes morality more dependable uh, in theory, the facts are it doesn't work. So right. even if my morality is entirely subjective, uh, the collective uh, humanity seems when they're taught to trust their own gut, collective humanity seems to arrive at better ways to treat each other. Whereas holding on to religious dogma seems to leave people perpetuating bad ideas because how can I question God? How can I question God's mouthpieces? How can I question those who have authority to lay down where we can be and where we can't be right. uh, in terms of a religious morality? And so bad ideas such as uh, somebody who's raped should marry their rapist uh, after the rapist pays dad a certain amount of money uh, was allowed to go on for hundreds, if not a thousand years, right? And there wasn't any way to question it because that's God's God's voice or God's authority speaking on his behalf. And you have no way to criticize it. It's a closed loop system. And this idea of, yeah, and this, this idea of Hitler, he's, he's right in that when you allow morality to be subjective, you allow people like Hitler to claim that they're doing the right thing. But it's again, a closed loop system that allowed, that forced everyone around Hitler to either support Hitler's ideas once they became noticeably absurd and nobody could question it. And you, you wasn't any way to criticize those ideas because you would be taken out and shot right along with the Jew if you told Hitler or his people that they were wrong about this concept of 
white supremacy. And so having the ability to trust your own intuition and having an open system where people can voice their concerns and change can happen is the best route we have at stopping Hitler's. It's not more religious dogma or dogma in general. It's not more closed loop systems. Yeah. And so even though, uh, even though Jacob has his way of framing this, that ends with Mormonism being true and his morality being right. He also senses that Mormonism is not very good at laying out a good morality and that somehow yeah. Bill Real seems to get it right on social issues before Mormonism does. Yeah. Um, and what I was trying to think of during that discussion was about how like if, if dogma and being able to question things when when ideas take hold that are just powerful enough that people, again, they outsource this authority that this person above me knows what's right and I'm going to snuff down my instinct of what's wrong. Um, and again, I think that instinct is biologically programmed through evolution for us to kind of look out for each other. But then there's also the biases of, of what is normal to go along with the group. Um, some people not feeling like sticking their head out and feeling like they need to be a leader. And so what I was trying to think of during that was like shaking Jacob to be like, the very problems with Hitler are the, 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 the dogma that you would want to attack within Hitler of how he gained power is the same. It's the same exact lane of thinking in these high demand control groups. You could think of a lot of atrocities that Mormonism got away with. And it was because people went along with things and were not able to question the authority. And if that's kind of, that's again, if we're talking about spiritual practices, I'm thinking of the intuitions that I hope that we all can recognize are within us to do good things. And what are the social norms around us that snuff down those feelings to do good? And if you believe that Mormonism isn't true, the truth claims Mormonism, Book Mormon didn't happen in things, you have to look at why the ideas about uh, these spiritual practices, wanting to be a god, the existential crisis that could be waiting for you if you reject all of these things, how much power that has to, to force people into a system to be complacent with atrocities. And I think that's evident all across Mormon history, honestly, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. And you asked how I get it true. So Dustin here, higher up, I think at 1145 AM, one of the comments on your thing, uh, he says, science is just another deception from Lucifer. And one of the things I learned early on was from Jonathan Streeter. And it was this idea of wood tools and steel tools. And wood My favorite tools other are thing meant, to always bring up. Yes. Yeah. Wood tools are always meant to keep you inside your current system. Um, they're not really ways in which to evaluate truth. So when, when Dustin says science is just another deception from Lucifer, Dustin is speaking about the things that he believes that science refutes. Like he doesn't have a problem with science saying there's gravity. He knows that's real, but only on the things that he believes that science refutes is science just another deception from Lucifer. But the moment you realize that that statement, if I, if I have a believer who has doubts in any system, Jehovah's Witnesses, Scientology, Heaven's Gate, Jim Jones, if I say science is just another deception from Lucifer, it works to keep the person in their system and never really gives them the tools to deconstruct it and to realize that their system isn't true. And so Dustin is simply spouting the things because he has beliefs that are very important to him that he needs to protect. And so the way I arrive at truth is I try to be a rational thinker. And to be a rational thinker, I always have to choose not the belief I want, but the belief that has the least amount of conjecture 
that requires the least amount of allowances. Uh, in other words, when I study the earth is flat versus being round, I'll watch the documentary on the earth being flat. And there are ways in which they present the evidence that you go, mm, wow, that's interesting. Like I could see why someone is persuaded by that argument. And then I go read why the earth is flat and the science on that. And what I end up with is that the earth, I'm sorry, being round. If I, uh, what I end up with is if I study the earth being flat, the leaps my brain has to make, the things I have to dismiss or create mental gymnastics for allowances uh, becomes much more significant than if I believe the earth is round. And so my brain is trying to figure out which explanation requires the least amount of conjecture and allowances. And that becomes the most rational answer. It is not always true. And some people are like, yeah, well, crazy things end up being true. Absolutely. We were just talking about space and time being fundamental. But my, if I'm going to be a rational thinker, I always have to go with the most rational answer until another answer becomes the most rational answer. And so as long, even though there are other possibilities, Santa Claus could still be real. Uh, my wife could be cheating on me right now instead of being at work. The reality though, is that I would have to make extra allowances and add an extra conjecture for those things to be true. And hence, I'm not going to. And the easy example, Spencer Wright always shares this one, and I really love it. If you're out in the woods staying in a cabin and there's a noise on top of the roof of the cabin, you got lots of choices. It could have been a pine cone falling off a tree. It could have been raccoon crawling around on the roof. It could be aliens have just landed and you're going to be abducted. And we all recognize to go with aliens is irrational. And the pine cone and the raccoon are similar, but based on the sound I heard, based on whether, where, were there trees that are within range of the roof? Are there pine cones on one of those trees? Like there's lots of reasons for why I might pick one over the other. I could end up being wrong, but I'm obligated if I'm going to be rational to pick the one that makes the most sense based on my current understanding of the data and evidence. And I want to listen to all sides and I want to listen to smart people on all sides. And I want to make space that I could be wrong. And we're not going to be good at this because we're human beings and we're, we're deeply swayed towards tribalism and we're deeply swayed towards uh, holding on to comfortable beliefs that give us safety and security. But I'm, but I'm going to try to pick the thing that is the most rational answer and until other evidence comes in and I'm open to it, uh, I'm going to hold that position until another answer then becomes the most rational. I don't hold out hope. When Mormons go, just have faith. What they're saying is, I see what you're seeing under the current paradigm. The church doesn't look good. But if you just wait in five years and 10 years on the other side after you're dead, you'll learn that it was then worked out and it was true. And that's making allowances and adding conjecture. I, I shouldn't make a decision based on what might happen. I should make a decision based on the best evidence that I have in this moment. Right. That is the logical bill real that deconstructed this brain. It's the nuance that you know and love today. Um, and I'm talking with Jacob Hansen, or I've read a bunch of books from like Rod Meldrum and Hannah Stoddard and their frameworks 
completely throw out that idea that to have the most spirituality, to be able to attain this, the strong impenetrable testimony that this restored gospel is true. It's not going to come through rational means. You are going through the ways of the world by just even saying what you're saying, completely ignoring again, the, the wood tools analogy, the outsider test for faith analogies that obviously the things that work within Mormonism, they work here because the church is true, but if they work in a different religion, then that, those people are led astray, but we're still going to use these fallacious arguments. We're still going to um, supersede what is, what is known to us in a material realm because the the only way God has told us in Mormonism, he's told us through the Book of Mormon that this will this will only come through uh yeah putting off these rational modes of understanding logic and and evidence because God doesn't work in that realm. So what do you think about that idea? Um because they don't even care. They don't even care, you know? It's like Yeah when these voices are telling you that rational thought isn't the solution, they're doing it with the second, with the unsaid, right? The implicit, which is that my system's true and this works to keep you in my system, but I wouldn't want you to use this same logic in another system. As you just pointed out, they're wood tools. They're, they're ineffective. Um, if you look up, uh, if folks were to look up one weird trick to fix my faith crisis uh, and then add uh, the phrase thoughts on things and stuff, you'll find Jonathan Streeter's yeah. blog and uh, that particular write-up, he lists what wood tools are and there he lists like 15 of them and wood tools are only used by the insider to keep everyone else an insider. They don't work in any other paradigm. They're useless other than to keep you happy and comfortable and to have you feel shame and fear and to draw you back into the system uh, and to keep others from uh, aligning themselves with you as you deconstruct. And, and so it's just uh, anybody who says, don't use science, anybody who says, uh, don't trust what scientists say, anybody who says, don't be a critical thinker, don't be rational, don't use logic. That only works inside their system to keep others in. It, it doesn't work anywhere else. It's a useless tool that's meant to keep you comfortable. And I think this would be a great segue to talk about once we kind of utilize these tools, I have a, a video that I did. I have like a two-part video on my channel. And one was about how I became a kind of a Jesus freak through the seven-year transition um, throughout my Mormon experience through my 20s. And, and then I kind of left the video on that of like how I became a Christian as a Mormon. And then the second part to that video is then where I deconstructed what I believed about Jesus Christ being a literal Messiah, all of the things to do with the Bible. And then the step forward after that um, is just, yeah, not accepting this, this classic idea of God kind of labeling myself as an atheist. Um, even though I think that word um, is difficult and it gets misconstrued sometimes because I want to be able to uh, help people understand what I mean by atheist and not just like all of the worst connotations that they could think of, obviously. So um, why don't you, do you want to tell me a little bit about, how you went from use, utilizing those tools and kind of deconstructing. And then I, I personally went through a strong nihilist phase um, where I was just like, well, nothing has meaning. I am just the product of millions of years of condition, conditioning. And um, I wear this necklace. If I had to pick any necklace, I decided to pick one that was a circle because it was, it was a fun phase in my life. It was a necessary phase to go through my nihilist phase. And I like to wear the circle because it 
at the time, I just would laugh. I would just laugh at the absurdities of everything. And there was a meme once that was just this ugly little guy's face that said, um, it's called the circle of life because it's fucking pointless. <laughs> and while I don't believe that necessarily anymore, um, it helped jump me out of the, the, the nihilism and to just enjoying and laughing and being here for a good time. And I have... I have a really, really happy and really, really healthy life that is unrecognizable from the one that I thought was really happy in Mormonism. So what would you say about your kind of deconstruction bill through utilizing those tools? What phases did you go through and where do you think you've landed spiritually? Yeah. So first off, you you answered the solution to nihilism at the extreme, which is absurdism. Um, it's this I'm idea that, that <laughs> just like that life is funny. <clears throat> the how you got to be here in this moment, like if your mom and dad had had sex 10 seconds later than they did, you wouldn't be here. If your dad had tripped on his shoe, uh, tripped on a shoe on the way out the door or something that one of you kids left in front in the front entryway and, and just stumbled just for a half a second, you wouldn't be here. It is absurd. The fact that this universe started umpteen you know, billion years ago and here you are today, um, it is it's insanity that any person is here in the moment that they're in good and bad is going to happen. And, and this idea that everything is subjective uh, Spencer Wright shared with me and I hundred percent agree with him. It's, it's not exactly true. In other words, for life to have started and for life to continue to progress, there are certain values that life has had and the values that life has had is to, preference survival uh, and adaptive tools. And so if we had all Hitlers, for instance, humans would never have gotten to this moment. Hum as long as there's human beings on earth, we're never going to uh, value uh, killing all of ourselves. There's going to be an unhealthy person out every hundred, right? There's going to yeah. be a few bad apples, but we are evolutionarily programmed to uh, survive and to whatever those tools are that help us do that collaboration, reciprocity, fairness to some degree. Mm -hmm. There's also Beautiful. others who the opposite, right? Cheating the system and, and taking advantage of others and hurting people to get what you want. Like those are values too. But if those values rule, then it, it descends into something where everybody could never have gotten to this moment because you never would have valued uh, the tools it took to get to a point where humans are this widespread. And, yeah. and so you, we ought to sense that for billions of years, the original life on the planet, whatever organisms those were, single cell bacteria, whatever it is, it, it would have gotten to, it got to here by collaborating, reciprocity, fairness, avoiding things that hurt us, seeking after things that benefit us. Um, so, so we're programmed. It's not, it's not all subjective and it's not all chaos. There are real processes working themselves out for us to get to this point. Um, I'm trying to think what else to add to that. Uh, Can I just what, add? Please. Uh, if you had a thought, go ahead. No, I don't. Please. So uh, I have no problem with people thinking that like I'm a brain dead idiot. You can think that if you want to, <laughs> but I would love to just share how um, I went to the Taylor Swift concert in Las Vegas in March with my best friend, Samantha Shelley, who's just in the chat. Samantha, if you're still here, wake, tell everyone hi. But um, I like to say that I had a spiritual awakening after the Taylor Swift concert in a tongue in cheek sort of way, but it was true because when I was, I was in this place with 60,000 other people, I feel like I'm watching 
you know, millions of years of evolution create the best lighting, the best sound, the best performance, and sharing that with a lot of people just kind of set me up um, to then go into the the night that night. Then Samantha and I ended up talking until 8 a.m. till the sun came up. Um, and the 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 feelings that I had that again, I don't I don't want to move away to calling myself an atheist. I don't want anyone to think that I'm like completely going to like woo-woo territory here. Um, it doesn't really matter what you think, but <laughs> what what Bill just said kind of resonated with me and the things that Samantha and I were talking about all night was just this idea that the universe wants to create new and novel things. And sometimes that that novelty, that newness of these these different ideas and energies coming together, um, the way that the way that our our evolution is programmed, if you can think of of the Big Bang, let's say if that's how the universe started, it really doesn't matter. But the idea is that there are, you know, 8 billion of us on planet Earth, and there have been billions of people and animals and plants. And that within all of that, there is a sustaining force with the sun and with the oxygen and all of these things that are all moving around with each other. And for all of those things to interact, there has to, there's going to be an energy that's going to be pulling these things together and apart and together and apart. And if the universe, the one thing that I feel like is true about it is that new things want to be created, new things want to be created, new things want to be created. And so, yeah, are there Hitlers that are going to pop up? Yes. Are there Taylor Swifts that are going to pop up? Also, yes, you know? And so looking at myself as like one item within that, that I am, I am part of that energy that's going to be creating new and novel things. And so it makes me feel really secure. It makes me feel really happy that when I was in Mormonism, there was nothing new and novel to come out of it. These that like we were talking about this closed loop, you just you know that these things don't make sense anymore. And if I do feel like I want to be connected to to society as a whole, why do so many people end up, you know, you know, cha-cha sliding to the left after Mormonism? It's because you're trying to feel more connected. You're not so uh, based in fear. You're based in in more love and, and just a gravity that pulls you to want to connect with people that are different than you. And you're open to those new ideas. You're not as as fear-based like, okay, you know, the more that you're in Mormonism, the more things start to nuance, the more you're like, ah, I don't actually believe this. I don't believe this so dogmatically. One step in front of the other, you start loving people more. And if love is just the highest truth that I, I learned within Mormonism, at least, that's like kind of something that came across to me that there's a maker that loves me and I want to love the people in my ward in my community you just keep you keep unraveling and you keep extrapolating that idea and so me and this this one person what can I do to be creating these these new and novel things it's not going to be in these closed loop systems that just don't work anymore it's going to be expanding my love it's going to be caring about people more I'm going to feel where my energy is pulled and where it's diminished and so I talk about this all the time like my decision to leave Mormon stories. Um, people think that it was like a bigger deal than it was, or like me and John got into some big fight or something, but it's just like literally that old, uh, <laughs> like uh, cleaning a room, like does it spark joy anymore? Like my energy wasn't pulled in that direction anymore. Like it felt like there was something within me. I couldn't really explain it. Just like, I could, I could say things that like it was my kids or I could say that um, I needed to work on other projects, but just generally like, did I have, um, was I, was I feeling an increase in energy and joy or does it spark joy in this area anymore? No. So it's going to, I'm going to, I feel like there was going to be something intuitive within me that's just going to pull me into something where my energy is going to multiply instead of diminish, you know? And so, yeah, so I had this, this big, long, long discussion and stuff with Samantha Shelley, some beautiful, um, epiphanies that happen about releasing shame about things that I still held on to within Mormonism, viewing things as much more um, morally neutral than even my four years out of Mormonism post brain was were trying to do. And I feel like all of it was just because um, 
I, as just something that is interconnected with my environment, um, ready to just move forward that again, that onward, uh, increasing, increasing the love, understanding that everything is abundant. If I can just lean into that, leaning into the right energies and, um, having nothing but compassion for myself and other people along the way. That's how I describe it. Yeah. I'm just, I'm following Dustin's comments. I don't know if you're seeing those two, but time is the answer for science with, uh, without billions of years, they can't explain anything again, wood tool, right? Like let's wait until later on when I'm proven right. But in the meantime, I agree with you that science does better explain things than the Bible. And for folks, and again, I want to start getting into kind of the ways in which I deconstructed these spiritual experiences, but um, Dustin, this idea that the Bible has all the answers, for instance, how would the Bible look any different if it was only written by men claiming to speak for God rather than by God? Or maybe how might the Bible look if God actually was the author? For instance, uh, the Ten Commandments that are in the Bible are about the weakest thing a supreme being could write for all of us to get along and, and to be. And there are several drafts. They're like, also don't, you know, boil your goats in milk. Like definitely don't do that. one. (laughs) And so the Bible is a mix of good and bad, which is what I would expect if human beings with limited awareness of how time would unfold and how their views would become asinine would look. And you could go into chat GPT today and you could say, based on all knowledge that you have at your disposal, Write for me 10 commandments uh, that human beings would be best to live by. And I guarantee you, by the way, that all 10 of those are better than any one uh, of of what uh, came down from Mount Sinai. Uh, And as you point out, there was a few rough drafts, I mean, to the point where you broke them and I guess they gave them a lesser law. Maybe the greater law was chat GPT's 10 commandments. Um, What I ended up thinking of when we go to deconstruct these spiritual experiences that seem so big and important and weighty to how we decided whether Mormonism was true or not. There were certain things that came to mind. One is that I recognized that Mormonism got in front of the problems and inoculated me with the mental gymnastic answers. And it's the one that sabotaged and repurposed some of these ideas. So one of them, for instance, is the uh, elevation emotion. And when I was a kid, we didn't learn what elevation emotion was. It may not even been a term until the modern day when Jonathan Haidt uh, does a lot of research into how humans feel when pleasant or bad experiences are happening. And in his research, he lays out elevation emotion, which he says, and you can go on Wikipedia and you can look it up, but elevation emotion is a warm feeling in our chest It is a feeling that there is good in the world and that I'm part of it, that great things could be accomplished if we'd work together. It could be hair standing up on the back of your neck. It's feelings of peace. And all of a sudden you go like, oh, wait a minute, that's the Holy Ghost. That's what Mormonism describes. Except that Jonathan Haidt argues that all human beings have the capacity to feel this and that you can be manipulated into feeling it even when what you think is going on is not what's occurring. So he could set up scenarios where people were doing bad things, but it looked like they were doing good and people still felt elevation emotion. So they could be tricked into feeling it 
when something good was not really happening. And so Mormonism comes along and goes, hey, here's the Holy Ghost. It's warm feelings. It's feelings of peace. It's, uh, you know, the burning in the bosom. It's, and it lays out all of those terms and ideas that you now frame what's true and what isn't. And what you'll come to find out, what I did 20 years later, is that science says that that's just the human experience. It has nothing to do with what system you're in. And it sure as hell has nothing to do with what's actually true or not. And then it happens again with the illusory truth effect or the illusory truth effect, which is this idea that if you repeat things enough, that you will come to believe them, even if they're not true. And another side of that is the person who gets to you first to frame your beliefs and ideas ends up with much more power and weight to them. So if I come, if you learn the Mormon church is true and I come in behind the Mormon church and go like, Hey, actually it isn't just without, without being overwhelmed by my data, you're much more likely to believe the first thing taught to you than the thing the next person says. And so the illusory truth effect is imitated in Mormonism by people like Boyd K. Packer, Elder Oaks saying that a testimony is gained in the bearing of it. So if a member of the church stands up and bears their testimony enough times, after a while, they will come to believe the thing that they are repeating, except that the illusory truth effect is the same thing. And we can show by scientific research that we shouldn't trust, according to Dustin, that uh, when you repeat something over and over again, even if it's not true, you are much more likely to believe it. And so I started to sense that Mormonism sabotaged secular framing of reality by getting in there first, giving it new terms and language, defining it in the same way that the secular world did, but without me knowing that the secular world, secular world had done that. And it got to me first. And, and that deeply uh, manipulated you and I and everyone listening into believing their world was the way it was when in reality it wasn't. Mm. Then where do you go from there? Where do you go from there? If they have, like I said, if they kind of already stamped and labeled these things as this, they have ownership over this. And so many people have so much resentment and uh, Mormonism, I would describe as very fear-based. And then you come to the other side, you're also very fearful of falling into those same traps again. So then where do you go from there? Because Sam Harris, like I said, is one of the biggest atheists ever. And um, there's a lot to be there's a lot to be taught by understanding the ubiquitous nature of spiritual experiences, the ubiquitous, uh, helpful mode of meditation and mindfulness. So where have you where do you go from there, then, Bill? Um, I start to. So these are things that I've had to do. Start to be comfortable letting go of your comfortable beliefs. Start being willing to read and learn and think using information, the best of information on both sides. Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris both talk a lot about steel manning ideas. Try to steel man the ideas you disagree with. Try to present those ideas in their strongest uh, framing. Try to present those ideas the best that can be done and see if your logic actually adds up. Uh, and, and again, we all fail at this. None of us human beings are good enough at this uh, to be deeply accurate. We're all wrong about things. No matter how much we're a rational thinker, we are all wrong about things that we think are true. And so the moment you sense, like I definitely, Bill Real, Cara Burrell, we hold beliefs that are not true. So I want to have the most 
true perspective. I want to be in touch with reality as much as I possibly can. Hence, I got to quit having loyalty to the comfortable beliefs around me. And I have to be willing to explore contradictory data and to see if that's, if that holds up. Um, Things that I've looked into, I've looked into whether we actually landed on the moon. I've watched the science on their end of the argument. I've looked at the videos and the arguments they make. Um, and I just don't buy it, but I went into it trying to make space in my head to go like, Hey, let's give it real safe space that we didn't land on the mood. And that's a conspiracy theory. Um, I, but I couldn't, I think all of us have got to be willing to explore ideas, uh, that are the beliefs we hold and to challenge ourselves and be willing to change sides, which one side doesn't want you to do. One side doesn't want you to change it all. And the other side is more than happy to have you have both sets of information available to you and for you to make the best educated, informed decision. And you should ask yourself, why does one side not want you trusting the internet? Why does one side tell you that Google is not the answer? Why does one side want you to rely on faith and limited perspectives and want you to stay away from listening to the critics of that system and don't want you weighing the information there? And I think if you're honest with yourself, you realize that that answer tells you pretty much everything you need to know. Right on. And um, somebody said in the chat, Sam Harris is okay, but his Islamophobia takes her a bit off. And when you were saying that, I was just thinking like, like, yeah, there's a lot of things that could be said about just about anybody who I, I love an I, I, idea that I connect with and I feel like is true. And I think if we're talking about where do we go from there, I really am viewing everything in like, yeah, listen to everybody. Like, honestly, the nuance I was take from the very beginning is always like, I, I've never walked in other people's shoes. I don't know the information that they know. I want to be a curious person. I want to get to the, the root of the matter. I want to discover layer upon layer upon layer of like, okay, I understand this, but what other context am I missing? What other perspectives could, could I not be listening to? What is the argument that counters what I already believe is true? And so taking um, at face value that, that, you know, there's, there's something that I connect with that that means I connect with all of the things that are in that, that idea, that book, that propagator of ideas is not, that's not who I am for who I'm, you know, that, that I view everybody that has wonderful ideas. And sometimes I, not sometimes, I, I would say that I view life as just a journey, not a destination. And in Mormonism, it is kind of a destination to kind of get to the most holy, the most righteous, doing the least amount of sinning, having the most amount of blessings you know, magnifying your calling, feeling like you're living up to all of these things and then broadening that and just stretching it of like, I don't know how long my life is going to be. I could die at any mm -hmm. moment. I don't know how long my eternity in this consciousness could be. And I don't have to figure anything out. I have total, total grace and love for myself as I go through the dips and, and waves of this journey. And along that, I see the dips and the waves of other teachers, other human beings that are just my neighbors around me, you know, people who have different occupations that their experiences are going to be informed by their genetics and their conditioning. And like me as a curious person, what can I learn? What can I glean from all of that along this life journey? And so instead of just kind of a central focus of like these 15 men in Salt Lake City, they have the answers of how to gain, obtain this exaltation, this destination that I'm looking for. It's a completely different framework now that I operate within that is so happy. It's so filled with joy because it's just filled with compassion, love, and understanding that 
there's an, there's an abundance there that even if I'm not seeing it right now, that's what I rest in. That's what I trust in. If we're talking about like, where do we go from here? Like I trust in that things will, things will come to me when they're meant to come for me. And, and I just kind of lean into what feels right, what energies um, I connect with. And, and if you want to, if you want to get into like the, the coincidences of things, it's, it's a beautiful thing to look for coincidences where it's like, Oh, this was meant for me. I'm glad that I did this. And I understand, or, I'm glad that I did this and I had this bad experience because now I know that that's not meant for me. You know, it's just stretching life out. It's just this journey of, of twists and turns and just having compassion and love for it. That's my, my spiritual take on life. And you're heading into the next area when you say like, Hey, I can appreciate all the value that other folks bring to the table. And I can appreciate the perspectives that other people bring to the table. And I can value on some level the spiritual experiences that other people bring to the table. Sure. And so the next space that I would want to go into is this idea that it's easy as a believer inside a system to think that you're, the, you and your fellow peers inside the system have special access to God and to his blessings. And so as a believing Mormon, I thought we had something and I couldn't exactly define it but we had something that was better or closer to God than what everyone else had. And part of this deconstructing of those spiritual experiences that I shared at the beginning that I thought were profound at the time, and maybe to some degree still do, is that I recognize that every spiritual system has people within it who have spiritual experiences. And their spiritual experiences are also, some of them are also profound. And some of those spiritual systems, their spiritual experiences contradict the truth claims of the system that I was in. In other words, if the FLDS person has a testimony in the exact same way that a LDS person does, and they both have the same heritage, they both have the Book of Mormon, they both have Joseph Smith as a prophet, and the FLDS are certain that Warren Jeffs is, is a true prophet. And, and the Latter-day Saints are so certain that Russell M. Nelson is the true prophet. And uh, we can't come up with any way in which to be certain which person's spiritual experiences are true and which person's spiritual experiences are not. And so I realized that you know the, the Heaven's Gate cult where everybody killed themselves, there's video footage of those folks talking on camera and they are certain they're right. And much of why they know they're right are based in their spiritual experiences. Um, again, the Jim Jones fiasco was horrendous. Some of those folks didn't choose to die and were forced to be poisoned. Um, but some of them did. They were so sure they were right. Uh, David Koresh and that whole thing. Uh, Scientology. There are folks who are sure they're right. Jehovah's Witnesses, there are folks who are sure they're right. And all of these folks are having spiritual experiences on some level that affirm to them that their spiritual system is correct. And so once I understood that human beings on in general, collectively, that we experience coincidences we can't explain, we experience uh, mystical things, we, we experience feelings inside us that seem to be attributed to our beliefs being true. Once I saw that that was just a human experience, I, it, wasn't, it wasn't that they, uh, 
the way they impacted me was they 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 told though knowing that told me that I shouldn't be so quick to give weight to my own spiritual experiences that instead I should see other human beings having similar things as telling me that I should uh, reduce the weight of spiritual experiences and how much trust I place in them. In other words, unless I have a really rational way to give credit to my spiritual experiences while discounting the spiritual experiences of others, um, it doesn't make sense that I give preference to my beliefs that those spiritual experiences testify of. Um, and I think that's a good segue into the, again, kind of more of the esoteric epistemology. Sorry if that's kind of a <laughs> the paradox there, but um, everyone take a drink because I'm going to bring up Eckhart Tolle. It was the first to kind of introduce me to the idea of of an ego and and what is kind of feeding that. And I guess the best way that I would describe knowing what to value and what not to value has a lot to do with um, being really having a keen awareness of what my ego would want to do and what is actually leading to to better fruits and just being really, really aware of of how the ego plays into things. And when I am still, I'm wearing a shirt Samantha Shelley gave my husband called Stand Still. <laughs> When I'm still, when I'm when I clear my mind and when I meditate and when I take things that again are not owned by Mormonism, they're not owned by any religion, um, just practicing uh, meditating, being quiet. I gave birth to two of my children. I have a whole video about how beautiful these uh, very Christian childbirths that I had were. And really what it was, it was a practice of mindfulness. I, I attributed it to Jesus Christ helping me get through it. Um, but yeah, these things that are not owned by any one religion but I think just kind of heighten our awareness of, of the reasons why we're doing things. If we're acting out of an egoic place, or if we're acting out of our, our highest sense of, of what is true, what is good and what is right for us. So do you have anything you want to add in since you were the one who introduced me to Eckhart Tolle um, of how you kind of decipher um, what, what to give credence to when those feelings come up? Yeah. Um, part of it is that, I've enjoyed the feelings of the spirit doing a whole lot of things. I've enjoyed the feelings of the spirit reading Sapiens, which would yeah. completely counter uh, a biblical narrative, would completely counter a Mormon narrative. And yet I felt the spirit. When I was a member of the church, because I'm a convert at 17, my favorite music group prior to joining the church was a rap group out of Cleveland called Bone Thugs and Harmony. And when I listened okay. to Bone Thugs talk about murder and drugs, I felt the spirit um, seeing others have the spirit outside of my system, seeing how my system tricked me into redefining terms and sensing that I could feel those feelings doing all kinds of things in the world. Some of those contradictory to living the gospel of Jesus Christ as Mormonism laid out showed me that from all, all facets that we're talking about, our brain is constantly being tricked by the systems around us into seeing the world a certain way. And such isn't the closest approximation of reality. Mm, we got a bone thugs fan in the audience, by the way, <laughs> will you rap for us, Bill? Is this where your, your rap uh, career starts? Um, and ends? No, actually for karaoke, I sing, uh, I often sing loonies. I've got five on it. I also Ooh. can do, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. 
player, give me some brew and I might just chill. But I'm the type that likes to light another joint like Cypress Hill. I still do be spit loogies when I puff on it. Yeah, and I can keep going. I know for the most part, all three verses. I felt the spirit. Do you want to start a religion? Yeah. Um, um, Do you have another thought you wanted to go with there? No, no. Uh, nobody wants to hear me sing a rap song. But uh, Besides the rapping. Just that everything you were raised, if you'd have been raised in Scientology, you'd have been tricked into believing that. And you would have had reasons that you could have answered somebody when they came to you and said, hey, you're you're kind of in something crazy. And you would have gone... Here's my wood tools. Here's here's how I stay. When you see, yeah. it is so hard, right? It's so hard as a believer to recognize how you've been tricked into belief. And it really does take this ability to ask a question, what if it isn't true? And then to step back and go, if it isn't true, um what would the Mormon church look like if it wasn't true? It would look like it does. Right. If it was true or not true, like you have to start thinking about what would it look like if it was, what would it look like if it wasn't ask the opposite question of the point of view that you hold, um, start challenging yourself. Don't assume that your system, you're, you're just so damn lucky. You were born in Kaysville, Utah in the one true and living church with which the Lord is well pleased and you're building the kingdom. But what if you were born in, uh, somewhere in the middle East? and you were, you were a Sufi or a Sunni, uh, you would have explanations for your belief system there that are just as powerful, just as useful in keeping you in that system. And so you have to start asking questions that um, push you to confront your beliefs uh, in a way that you tackle ideas and thoughts and questions that, that were meant to kind of uh, push you to see if that really holds up. Uh, anyway, I'm why would God? Point. Why would God create a, a religion that mimics all other sex cults, <laughs> right? Where the leader needs to marry other people's wives. Yeah. Um, the The last thing, would you mind if we went into? Should we talk about sweet, sweet drugs? Drugs are one of my favorite things. Mine too. So um, when. Again, there's this there's this idea that people who leave the church, they just leave because they just want to sin, sin, sin. And again, this whatever a construct of what a sin looks like within Mormonism, I don't really care. <laughs> um, I'm looking for what helps increase my my love, my attentiveness to my kids that helps expand um, my 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 mind to make me more curious. And if that's a sin, then send me to hell. Right. So. Uh, after I left the church, I started dabbling in, in cannabis, obviously. And the, the the most spiritual experiences, quote unquote, spiritual experiences that I would define as just feeling incredibly interconnected with everybody on earth, feeling like an outpouring of love. And you and I both make content for people going through faith crises. And one of the reasons that I do it is because I know what it feels like to have the rug pulled out from underneath you. I know what it feels like that dark night of the soul and feeling like a computer without an operating system. And that's still that, that tribe of, of where I came from and feeling like I can be a good articulator and offer something to people when Bill, you were that person for me paying that forward and doing that in small amounts that I can for other people. It's that nothing is just existing by itself on an Island that 
the ways that Bill showed up to turn on his microphone had entire ripple effects to help other people. And so just feeling this interconnectedness, it's again, it's not, it's, it doesn't have to only be that we are interconnected because the, the Holy ghost uh, is motivating us to propagate that Joseph Smith was a prophet. The book of Mormon's true. And the only way to return to your father in heaven is by shaking hands with uh, angels and practicing that in a Mormon temple, taking out those constructs of how we, how we feel connected to something out greater outside ourselves that we're just in this box that we're so black and white and feeling like there's this interconnectedness was really done for me. Um, I would say only about a year ago um, on mushrooms. And I don't do mushrooms a lot because I like to say that it feels like I am like, Oh, I'm like, Oh, this will be light cannabis. This will be easy breezy. But then it feels like the universe has a boot on my throat that's like all right motherfucker we're gonna be talking about some stuff now and I was like oh, I don't want to feels like I showed up for an ice cream social at like a church event and it's like haha bait and switch here's a shovel it's a freaking service project so but the beautiful parts <laughs> of mushrooms and things like that my first mushroom trip um Samantha Shelley got me a Airbnb for my birthday last just about one year ago and I had the most what I was the first time where I was like, I remember what it felt like to be a Mormon. I remember what it felt like to be a Christian. And I mean that in the only the best sense where I just felt like, Oh, I, I love being human. I love being in this our incarnation. I love feeling like I have talents. I love looking and appreciating other people's talents. I just want to vibe with everyone and what, what goodness people have to bring to the earth and having nothing but for a, nothing but compassion for people along their journey. And Bill, the, what was the, the, the slide that you were showing in at the very beginning of that, that debate kind of with Jacob Hansen about like the, it's kind of like the, uh, like states of consciousness or like wisdom coming up. What was the name of that slide? I think you're muted. I, I would have to go find it. Cause I made a bunch of slides from the experts on what a faith crisis is. It was Margaret Placentra Johnston that started off that slideshow um, I can go look for it if you want me to and try to find it here before the show ends. But yeah, if you want to find that, I can try to, um, I might even be able to present, let's tell you what, let's do this. Does it let me present slides, world faith crises? Let's try this. You want to add that to the screen? Yeah. Um, and the only so, reason I really wanted to bring this up was yeah. just because I think what Jacob Hansen was missing is like that you're saying like one state of of growth or actualization or whatever is better than one another and i view things as quite quite morally neutral on this that like people are the products of their genetics their conditioning there's no free will in any of this and just looking at the beauty and that there is going to be a resonance with different frequencies of different types of people who are showing up as only the way that they can show up in this world so you have you want to read off kind of what those are and the only reason i wanted to bring this up is just like i have nothing but compassion and love for the states that people are in you know yeah there is a a hierarchy of sorts, but it's not the way he was trying to push back on. So there are lower stages and higher stages of cognitive development, only meaning that when we start off as babies, we are very uh, egocentric. Uh, if my diaper is a mess, if I'm hungry, I scream and yell. I don't give two shits about whether uh, my parents are having a bad day. I don't give two licks about whether my parents uh, have to get something done and they're preoccupied. I'm only worried about me. 
And if we go back far enough in, in time, all life was egocentric. And somewhere along the way, life figured out that if we collaborate, if we reciprocate, if we treat each other fairly, there's a benefit. And so the next stage of development is ethnocentric, meaning that you are very tribal. There is, there is us and there is them. And I'm going to do all the things to help us trust each other and to help us work together. But, uh, but I'm also going to help us defeat them. And so you see kind of tribal warring. And much of the world today is still, much of the leaders of the world today still are in this kind of black and white ethnocentric stage of othering everyone else outside of your tribe. And, and you ask can the see, reasons why they do that. <laughs> yeah. And, and it is a survival tactic because it allows your tribe to protect your own self-interest. But what it does is it diminishes everyone else as something less than as human as you are. Um, and as you move through these stages, you eventually get out of ethnocentricity and you move into, um, uh, I'm trying to think of a name for this, but it, it, you individuate so that what it means is that you uh, deconstruct the beliefs and expectations of your own tribe and you make space for like, hey, all human beings, no matter of what group they're in, no matter what, uh, uh, what color their skin, no matter what their sexual orientation is, no matter what gender they are, no matter what their gender expression is, no one is of more or less value than another human being. And when you uh, individuate, in other words, you recognize that you are your own unique version of human but that the ideas behind tribalism is just another layer of myth, you begin to become much more inclusive and accepting of people. And you also leave that black yeah. and white thinking where the world is either full of cat people or dog people. And you realize that some people like cats and dogs and some people don't like animals at all and don't want pets to be in their home. Um, you make for more nuance because in reality, while we like to find people that we're similar to, you are alien to every other human being on this planet. You think different. You are different. There might be similarities and there might be a significant number of similarities, but it's not real. You're also very different than every other person. And Jacob, and I don't mean this rudely, Jacob doesn't sense it, um, but he's at that expert achiever stage. He is ahead of the rest of his believers in his tribe He's the guy blazing the trail in front of them. And so he sees himself as having achieved. He's, he's arrived. And in reality, he has a whole ton of deconstruction to do to move into these stages, which at this point in the world, the experts may not use this particular language that Ken Wilber here has established on the screen, but the experts agree that this is the general territory. This is the general trajectory of cognitive development. What it is not, it is not a way to measure somebody. A child who's in the egocentric stage isn't of more or less value than the person who's at the magician stage uh, or the, or the ironist stage or the individualist stage. Rather, knowing the map helps each of us in our own life to sense what is ahead and to sense what we've overcome and to recognize that we ought not to ever think that we've arrived. 
Amazing. I love you, Bill. So dope. Um, look, we're big now. Um, I like it. Uh, I love that. I love that so much. Yeah. And it's it's hard when you come from a framework like Mormonism, I think, to understand those types of things. And just over the last couple of months, I've been able to have just such a free flowing of compassion for people at whatever stage that they're at, that one's not technically better or worse than another, but I can learn things as I go along that path. And it had those different lines of, of development. And um, as the nuance ho on the ho part of myself, okay, there's, I've, I've learned since leaving the church that um, like the branches of sexuality, what I learn about myself as I'm on that development, um, it's not who I used to be. And those things, those bleed out into other, other aspects of my life and other, other, uh, other cores of, of identity and it's it's a beautiful journey to look at it. And I don't need to compare myself to anyone else along those different stages. But if you try to just be a an open minded person who is curious and you'll be able to pick up those different types of things. And it's it's quite like morally neutral. And Samantha Shelley told me um, on our our Taylor Swift spiritual awakening <laughs> sleep overnight um, about just having compassion for myself and for others about thinking of things in terms of a tree if you see a tree that's growing outside of you know come across a tree that's like grown into a fence or something um you don't assign a lot of labels about what a bad tree that is you just understand that it probably didn't get the right soil that it needed it had obstacles in its way it didn't get the right sunlight that it needed and it's <clears throat> it's a, it's it's a beautiful framework to be able to teach my children you know that i love them just as they are and and the reasons why we make mistakes my kids are very very anxious children and the ways that i have compassion for myself and others Yes, that 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 bleeds into beautiful things of how I teach my children that it's okay to make mistakes and 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 looking at them as is the things that they're doing, having compassion for the exact stage of development that they should be at, and that we are all just like you wouldn't you wouldn't fault a tree for growing incorrectly. Um, I don't really fault anyone for being the product of their genetics and their conditioning. So, yeah, and maybe just to speak for a moment, we, you mentioned drugs a little earlier. Um. The spiritual experiences that I had in Mormonism that had that kind of magnitude with me, I experienced something. It was different, but it was greater. When I took uh, MDMA for the first time, I was with a group of friends. Uh. MDMA is Molly slash ecstasy. Rather than go to a rave, which is how some folks use it, what we ended up doing was taking MDMA in a small group in the backyard of a, of a friend's home. Um, we had access to water so we could, which is I the think trampoline is, story. I won't, uh, I won't share the ending. No, no, that's okay. okay. This, <laughs> this, this is not the trampoline story. The trampoline okay. story happened about three weeks later when we did it a second time. Okay. Um, but, uh, that night there were, I think six of us and the six of us took it. And if anyone hasn't done it, I'll simply explain your ego is taken down to the absolute minimum. And you have the ability to confront your own bullshit. You have the ability to listen to another person without your walls going up. And you have the ability to work out real things that have been plaguing you or plaguing you in your relationships for decades. And my wife and I felt like, and we say it to this day, we felt like we did literally 10 years of therapy in a single night that when we woke up in the morning, we were changed. You know, the, the, 
the Mormonism likes to use that idea that there's this mighty change. When we took MDMA, we had a mighty change. We came, got up the next morning and we were forever different in how we were going to uh, handle conflict, how we were going to talk to each other, how we were going to deal with hard things. Right. And then another experience I did ayahuasca. Uh, did it? Yeah. yeah. Did ayahuasca with, uh, I can't remember how many of the people there were. There was either 11 or 14. We were all on yoga mats. Uh, we all had our blue bucket to purge in and we did it two nights in a row. And the first night was crazy. And the second night was even crazier. And it was, I always tell people, uh, when I do cannabis, the way I describe cannabis is I'm sitting in the passenger seat with my best friend. And my best friends in control of where we're going, but I've got some input and we're having a good time. We're listening to music. Mm-hmm. When I do mushrooms, it's like being in the back seat and you got to kind of really yell at the driver or be loud to get them to go where you want them to go, but you're not really in charge and you're kind of the, the third wheel. And then ayahuasca is you've been zip tied and thrown in the trunk and you have no say on where the car's going and you have no clue where it's going to end up. Right. And on. the second night of ayahuasca I had, you know, you said, you mentioned Terrence McKenna earlier. I had, without having learned it beforehand, I learned the stoned ape theory and all of its permutations of how human beings create ritual to overcome tribal trauma and why we do what we do to, and it was amazing. Yeah. Um, Those experiences with MDMA and ayahuasca were exponentially more spiritual and, uh, more important to who I was as a human being going forward than any experience that ever occurred inside Mormonism. Uh, And then I'll just say with sex and sexuality, you know, this system tricked you into believing that if you married young, it wouldn't matter who you married. You, you just figure it all out and you'd be just right for each other. And the reality is as a 18 year old, a 19 year old, a 25 year old, you don't have a damn clue who you are. You don't have a damn clue who your person is, your partner. And uh, inevitably, if you're lucky, it'll work super well. But but most of us are going to find that we weren't exactly the mask that we put on while in the system. Our partner wasn't exactly who they were with the mask on when they were in the system. And when you start to be honest with each other, you're going to find that that maybe people aren't exactly what you want them to be. And, and when you decide you're ready to be your authentic self, you have the ability to create a life that is more of what you want, but you also have to respect the other person who also wants their life to live, be a certain way. And so now you've entered what is adulthood and you begin to negotiate with your partner, what you'd like your look, uh, life to look like. And you also negotiate to compromise in order to ensure that your partner uh, gets the life they want it to look like. Sometimes that doesn't work and people get divorced and uh, people need to feel safe in relationships. People need to um, have their basic needs met. And all of that is complex, messy stuff. And to pretend otherwise is simply to ignore the truth in the room which is we're very different human beings than any other person. And we're going to bump into each other and in bumping into each other, we both can't have the world look exactly the way we want it. And so if I love and care about somebody enough, I'm going to figure out ways to 
be enough of me that I can be content while also being at least on some level what they need me to be so that they can feel safe. And maybe that means your relationship ends and maybe it means that you can make it work. And I've been lucky enough, been married to my wife for 25 years. And anytime one of us has come to the other and said, I just cannot tolerate this thing happening in our relationship anymore, or I just can't tolerate not having things that are not currently present in our relationship, Mm -hmm. that both of us have been, have loved each other enough and had enough room to shift that we've been able to accommodate and compromise and sacrifice for each other that it continues to work. But there's no guarantee that it'll work for everyone. In fact, 50% of people get divorced and many who are still married aren't very happy. And some who got divorced made maybe the wrong move there. It's just a messy life. It is. There's no right or wrong answer. You just do the best you can, but you do have a right to ask for what you need. Yeah. And you have a right to, to, I would just say like through meditation, just letting your mind be cleared and kind of come up, let things come up and you don't have to act on every single impulse. You don't have to think that just because you have a a thought that that's what you need to proceed (laughs) in that direction, you know? Um, But it's, again, if we're talking about spirituality, it kind of comes back to all of this taking back an autonomy of it's, it's messy and that's, it's beautiful though. At the same time, if life is, it's going to be a journey and you're going to learn things along the way. And if sexuality is one piece of this, if deconstructing uh, what you thought were, were true things and just be on this lifelong pursuit for what resonates and, and what leads you to um, love people better and leads you to serve people better and take care of yourself, take care of your kids. Um, I think the, the truth, will always set you free. And there's no one, there's no such thing as one way liberation anyway. So the more that you are living up to that, that highest potential that might've been snuffed down by high demand religion. Um, I think the people around you will also be liberated to kind of do those things as well. That's what I've seen in my life. Um, but that was, that was a really beautiful articulation that I, I resonate with, um, quite a lot in this journey. Um, and I, and I would just say kind of as a, a closing thought on my end, If we go back hundreds of thousands of years ago, almost every primitive society had a shaman. And the shaman, what what the folks did with a shaman is the shaman gave you some sort of catalyst that sent you into a spiritual experience. Uh, Medicine tools, meditation. uh, there, There are other ways to get at it, even in the modern age that are different than back then. But the idea was that the shaman encouraged you to have your own spiritual experience where you went off and learn truths that were important to you. Right. And when you woke up in the morning, either you or the five people around you could all share what your individual separate experiences were. Somewhere along the way, somebody realized that that could be used to control people. And rather than recognize the guru was inside of you and encourage you to have your own experience with ayahuasca or the, the, the frog uh, poison that that can send you off or DMT or um, magic mushrooms or LSD. Yeah. Instead, somebody said, no, let's let's put it into a box where we dictate what God has in store for everyone and will control the narrative and will control the spiritual experiences. When in reality, the goal all along was for the you to recognize the gurus inside of you. The kingdom of God is within. Yeah. Um, 
there are so many, you brought that up. And so that's why I stammered. There's so many scriptures that speak of you being your own authority. He speaketh as one who hath authority. Um, you ought to be so comfortable with yourself internally that you speak as one who has authority, uh, not who, not as one who concedes it to someone else. And so anciently primitive societies would have taught you to go find yourself and modern systems teach you that you have to trust all the answers that come from the outer authority inside the system. And those are two very different spiritual paths. And one is about control and manipulation. And the other one is about you being your very best self, even if that's different than the person next to you. And what a great wrap up because you're like worried about conceding that we have these spiritual ex experiences within that system. And if we're talking about, yeah, they're actually, they're, uh, they're hostage within this. And uh, if anyone's ever watched, I cannot end this without bringing up Fantastic Fungi. It's the best thing I have ever watched. Have you seen the documentary mm -hmm. Fantastic Fungi? Yeah. Everyone mm -hmm. stop what you're doing right after this. Go to Netflix and go watch Fantastic Fungi. And just, we're talking about an interconnectedness and the way that, 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 that uh, mushrooms and funguses are all around us. You could inhale right now and breathe in a bunch of fungus spores wherever you are. And that through our, our planet, through our journey as being sapiens on that, there's just so many ways that we are connected with these things. And then if you take magic mushrooms and the way that you, you honestly do feel more connected with everything, it's not by mm -hmm. accident. I think it's by mm -hmm. design of this, this universe, this growth of this planet, the way that things are honestly sort of meant to be. Um, so I just had to plug that recommendation and then also add on to that, that yes, um, the, the best, um, what you're talking about with MDMA and I've done, I've done Molly probably twice and it's been the best days of my life because not just how I, how good I feel and how connected I feel with the people that I'm with, but because I realized how, how kind of, uh, plastic, not plastic. What am I trying to say here? Um, flexible, I guess, um, my brain is and how many walls that I had up of just questions that I didn't think to ask my husband places that I didn't think to go and feeling completely non-judgment of that person and of myself of going into these realms. You just kind of realize, uh, the paths that you haven't quite taken. And I, you can do that with cannabis. People can do that on alcohol. That's why it's called the social lubricant. But I really mean like, like, like getting right deep down into feeling like there, are, there are two people who are in these meat suits and then taking a drug where those meat suits are just arbitrary, arbitrary containers mm -hmm. for, for mind and body and spirit. And that there's a level of love that transcends just the meat suits that your, your brain is trying to function within on your day-to-day -day life. And between doing mushrooms and that, but have you ever done DMT? <laughs> is it DMT is similar to ayahuasca though, right? Yeah. It's one half of the ingredients of ayahuasca. Okay. So I have, but it didn't work for me. And I'm hoping at some point before I die to do it again and it work. Yeah. So I did DMT for the first time in January and it changed everything. I can say. Did you talk to machine things, elves? Um, sort of. Sort of. Um, I kind of <laughs> knew what I was getting into because Samantha Shelley, yeah. she showed yeah, yeah. me there's a bunch of Joe Rogan is big into DMT mm. and stuff. And he had him on, on a bunch of experts and I watched kind of their videos. Um, but yeah, you can either get laughed at and your ego could be to like, you know, you're a piece of shit or whatever. Um, but I had the most profound experience that I couldn't even I couldn't be able to even put into words. It was so 
life-changing. And it, from that point forward, it just domino affected. It just kind of broke my brain in the most beautiful ways of feeling. Um, if we're talking about how we kind of started this podcast of feeling very depressed and wanting to have a maker know that you exist. That's kind of what I wanted out of Mormonism and um, feeling like everything that I need, all those answers are right here within me. Like any shame that I feel about my body, any insecurities that I have about the way that I show up um, in different ways, um, feeling like those are, those are part of my strengths. Those are part of my very power uh, to, to, to feel connected with, with all of these other things, feeling like I wasn't, I wasn't trying to get behind the machine elves and the machine elves were like, they folded everything in and it was like, you're trying to look for something and it's right here. And so it's that, but it was a whole lot more. And I would say out of all of my experiences that kind of broke my brain and made me feel um, the most happy, the most connected, the most um, able to overcome like every day-to-day challenge, I would put like DMT experiences are right up there. Um, some people have a challenge with taking enough and kind of going to like a waiting room of just like crazy optical things that are happening like the greatest hd television screen you've ever seen in your entire life um i would call that like sacred geometry and colors everywhere yeah yeah but breaking through that it was honestly crunchy too it was like actually painful like i i heard crunching and i was like cam did you hear that so it was it was it's kind of painful to to take enough to get through that and it only lasts 10 minutes but coming out of that, I had a, I had Samantha's cat, like paw open the blankets that were over my face. It was, it was a crazy cool, beautiful experience, but I would put that at the, at the top list of just feeling again, I'm, I'm using spirituality and kind of quotes. Cause when I say that, that's going to mean whatever it means to the listener. I know what it means for me. You can say what it means to you, but like the most spiritual that I've felt in connecting with kind of that, that, that resonance that was, that I was trying to, to get at when I was Mormon. Yeah. Notice, by the way, a lot of these unhealthy spiritual systems want to persuade you with one way or another not to do those kinds of things. Exactly. That's the fantastic fungi point, you know, whether it's like uh, political systems of just uh, the status quo, assuming that these are the things that it always has to be and making things illegal because if too many people did them, they wouldn't sign up to go fight their wars or whatever. Yeah. And also a warning too. notice that any system, a a yoga class, for instance, can create uh, a spiritual experience where you think that like, oh, I've got to now pay my yoga instructor $5,000 to do a yoga retreat every two months. Or um, Scientology kind of really shows us that this constant bumping into its members, telling them they have to pay significant amounts of money to in order to keep progressing along the spiritual path, that not all of these are religious systems. Um, Beautiful. You ought to notice that anytime there is an unhealthy shaman, guru, prophet at the head, that they're going to constantly tell you that there's more to do and more money to pay. And just because you felt a spiritual experience doesn't make that system true. And you ought to be aware of how the leaders of those systems, religious or otherwise, are manipulating you to be loyal to it when the spiritual experience had may have little to do with the system itself, rather the mechanisms all systems use to create spiritual experiences. Yeah, exactly. And the only thing I'd also add to that is this feeling of inadequacy that you're not arriving at the level of whatever you want to call it, like consciousness or, um, 
you could throw around a bunch of like new age type of buzzwords I won't even get into. But there's an there's always going to be that that idea of of inadequacy that could possibly come up. And it's not something that I, I, I resonate with anymore. I'm just like, it's it's a journey and I'm going to learn where I'm going to learn. Uh, my psyche will reveal itself in layers. Things will present themselves to me. And when I when I meditate and I'm calm and I'm not feeding an ego and I'm not uh, hyper-focused on uh, performance, that's been a big, big one um, over the last couple of years. But Kara, nuance ho, is that all you do? Trust me, I've got a handle on it. <laughs> um, I've got a really good handle on it after my Taylor Swift watching the best performer in the entire world. I've got a handle on, um, yeah, like show how I show up sexually, uh, how I show up in, in, in the content and the reasons why I do it. Um, the way I show up in conversations with other people, the reasons why I do things. Um, and if it comes from any kind of place where I'm not measuring up and, and I feel it's because I'm, I'm inadequate in some way, um, I, I like to peel back that layer and be like, well, where's that coming from? What's that, what's that shame story that I've been kind of telling myself? And it's usually, it's not my higher truth, you could say. It's not something that I actually want to continue with. And so I kind of just like release that. So it's, 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 honestly the answer to just about every depressive episode that I've ever gone through. Like I, I give myself compassion that I'm not going to be able to figure all these things out and I'm going to have lows and highs and things. But generally speaking, just the answer is just releasing a lot of that shame, knowing that my inadequacies are just uh, an outgrowth of, of my culture and my psyche and my biases to kind of tell myself certain stories, but going in and meditating and questioning those, those narratives and those stories always leads to good results. And I would want to say one last thing about drugs, which is the disclaimer that I know you feel this way too. Most like when I say, I'll just, I'll use these three big ones, uh, magic mushrooms, ayahuasca and uh, MDMA. Uh, most, almost entirely everyone would benefit from those, but it's not everyone somewhere in the range of maybe one to 3% of people will have a, experience that at least short term uh, wasn't healthy for them. And for a small number of people, likely under 1%, you also have a risk of uh, unhealthy results that are long-term, um, such as folks who are very fragile mentally on the maybe borderline schizophrenic, borderline uh, extremely depressed. Um, if you're on certain medicines, so folks should do their own research and uh, sure. should be very intelligent and careful about when and where they choose to do such things. But it is true that for the far majority, again, 97%, let's say, uh, folks will have a incredibly useful experience that will be transformative to their uh, entering into something that is those later stages of development, at least starting to edge into further than where they were and being able to work out real life issues that have been plaguing you since you were a child. Yeah. Like amazing research is being done in that field. Um, you know, with soldiers coming back from war, PTSD things. So there's huge benefits, but obviously everyone do your own research. We don't know anything. So yeah, definitely not um, a doctor and I've never played one on TV. Um, uh, do you mind if I wrap up with this one quote that I think would Sounds summarize good. a lot of my thoughts on things? Robert Adams, who's an author and spiritual teacher, he has this quote that says, there's something within you that knows what to do. There's a power greater than you that all, I hate when I have to read on camera. It's my worst. <laughs> I started. <over. laughs> 
There's something within you that knows what to do. There is a greater... Fuck me. Good Jesus Christ. Starting over. This is where I would edit it if this wasn't a live stream. There's something within you that knows what to do. There is a power greater than you that knows how to take care of you without your help. You, All you've got to do is surrender to it. Surrender your thoughts, your mind, your ego to the current that knows the way. To the current that knows the way. It's just like, I just think of that as like leaving Mormonism. It's just, I was in a current. It was like my psyche just revealing itself with piece, puzzle pieces. And then he ends by saying, it will take care of you. It will take better care of you than you can ever imagine. And that's just like this intuitive sense of like, when the pieces of Mormonism don't fit anymore, you can't put them back together. You can't, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube anymore. And then where do you go from there? You feel so alone. And I would just say like, trust that that inner sense of knowing that couldn't put those puzzle pieces together. We always talk about those tools that you gain that some people deconstruct all Christianity and all religion. I just feel like those tools, that intuitive sense, you're on a current. And if you trust it and you lean into it and you like, you are, you are a person who is growth minded and you're looking to do good in the world and you're looking, um, to expand outside of the confines of what Mormonism gave you while still like kind of honoring the good parts, understanding, reading books like Sapiens that can be super helpful and just understanding our evolution and, and what we can take from pieces of the past and then move forward into Eckhart Tolle, a new earth, um, meditating the whole, the whole long journey as we, as we go throughout this bumpy road of life. Um, I feel very, very secure and happy with that following that current and that intuition of where it's gotten me. Yeah. Don't be afraid to deconstruct, um, but also be thorough. Take your time and do a lot of self-care because losing your identity and letting go of your system is extremely hard. But a, a healthy person trying to do the best they can with that, it will almost always end up with you being happier that you deconstructed it than to maintain those uh those comfortable beliefs that seem to hold you for a while. They, they may not hold you forever. And if they do great, like if staying is the best thing for you and you want to mm-hmm. believe, then go for it. But if you're sensing that something doesn't add up, you ought to recognize that things are not as scary as the system has scared you into thinking. Right on. Um, and I just want to quickly read our super chats real quick. Hannah said, just woke up. I'm in New Zealand. Can't wait to listen to this from the start. Bill real and nuance. Ho. It's such a fabulous combination. I can read super chats almost flawlessly. Look at me go. Erica said, thanks for being so open. Both of you have benefits so many and it's tough to do in a public space. We, we try our best and thanks for the $5 Amber. Appreciate you guys. Thanks for tuning in and hanging out with us. I hate reading on camera. <laughs> I never can do it correctly. Um, any other final words, anything you want to plug Bill? Just come see me. Yeah, yeah. Come see me on May 30th. I would love to see folks show up. It'll be a big help for, our nonprofit and um, we I'd love to have a chance to meet with folks and to have more time to spend with each of you. Amazing. Um, I'll flash that on the screen one more time in case anyone is a, uh, wasn't here at the very beginning and you just happen to be in the live stream. You're like, what are we talking about? Um, yeah, yeah. Go out and follow that link and go out and go visit Bill. Um, yep, I'll again, be in I'm- Alpine and Salt Lake city uh, this coming week. Uh, May, what is it? 28th through the 30th. Excited. I'm excited to see you, Bill. Yeah, the fun. only things I have to plug are um, just basically hope that you're subscribed to this channel. I do try to put out new videos weekly. I do shorts and TikToks, but also long format things like this. And I do them without YouTube ads. I put them up on my patreon.com slash nuanceo and also an audio only format on there. And you can get lots of other fun stuff on my Patreon. 
Um, I have a Venmo at Cara B and a donor box. And I'll put those links down below. And I just really thank everyone for their support. It's hard. Sometimes people move in and out of the space. And so kind of replacing donors to keep this channel sustainable is something I'm always kind of on the prowl for. So if this content was valuable to you, which I hope it was, please share it, please like it, press the like button. And um, just overall, hope that you took something good from our discussion. I had a good time, Bill. I feel like yeah, this was same. a good, this was a good, our own type of testimony, fast and testimony meeting. <laughs> You're doing a great work. All right. Um, I guess I will let you get out of here. Thanks so much. Thanks everybody. Okay. Take it easy. All right. Bye.